Welcome to Stray Bullets, episode 14. Thanks for joining me. In truth, I never envisaged the podcast lasting this long. It was really just going to be a brief offshoot of my writings and RUC experiences. I think there's still a bit in the tank though, and I still haven't even got the dissidents and organised crime groups. So, in this present episode, I'll be looking at the first three episodes of the BBC drama Blue Lights, created by Declan Lawn and Adam Patterson which portrays frontline policing within the police service of Northern Ireland. Thankfully, and in my opinion, it's far from the travesty which The Fall was, another BBC drama series, but one poorly researched and scripted, relying instead on the pull of Jamie Dornan and Gillian Anderson, the latter seeming just to play the same character she did in James Marsh's awful Shadow Dancer film from 2012. Anyway, just before I start, I have to say that there will inevitably be spoilers in this episode. Where to begin? Throughout each episode of Blue Lights, it was evident that the production team had spoken to serving PSNI officers, and most likely some retired officers too. For me, it added a touchstone of reality, set well above the large pile of visual and literary media which, or by which, Police characters are either influenced and moulded from previous creations by writers who have never really understood policing correctly or merely use police characters as plot devices, a sort of closed loop of misinformation which seeds and propagates ridiculous and weary cliches. So what makes Blue Light so different? Well, only seconds into the first episode, The viewer has shown the dangers and stresses of having to keep a personal protection weapon in the family home of officers who served in the Royal Ulster Constabulary and the PSNI, and those continuing to serve in the PSNI. I once worked with an officer whose young child, about six or seven, managed to get hold of their Ruger revolver in the family home, and was strong enough to draw the hammer back enough to pull the trigger onto the second pressure, making it tragically easier for them to subsequently activate the weapon and put a 357 round through their palm and several fingers. Sadly this has catastrophic repercussions not only for the child but also their parents and the greater family circle. Having to keep a powerful revolver or semi-automatic pistol at home was an added stress to the job. Not only had you to be mindful of its location and security in case you were visited by doorstep killers, but you also had to ensure it was safely out of access to any family members or friends. Coupled with whatever atrocity, threats, fatality or general work-related stresses you encountered while on or off duty. This was just another ingredient in your daily mindfuck. There's any number of tales involving personal protection weapons from the ridiculous off-duty officers in a city centre bar asking the shocked barman if he could look after their glocks behind the bar. Or another, like the intoxicated officer slouched at the bar in such a manner that one of the doormen had to come over and tell him that everyone could see he was wearing a pancake holster and his waist belt loop, containing a Ruger revolver or the plainclothes officer who was performing guard duty in one of the secure wards of the Royal Victoria Hospital and subsequently terminated duty, forgetting that they had left their personal protection weapon on the top of a cistern in the toilets. Thankfully, the ward sister had the wherewithal, the access, 
and deal coolly with the situation, resulting in a corralling of potential fallout. And as you've heard from each light-hearted recollection, there are also the dark, not just of the officer's child who lost part of their hand, but also of the officer who lost his personal protection weapon somewhere between the Grosvenor Road roundabout and the M2. The weapon found its way into the hands of the provisional IRA and was first put to use in the murder of two off-duty officers in the city centre. So the image of the character, Grace Alice, of her son coming downstairs with her Glock is just another tiny ripple of anxiety in the large lake of stress which is policing. It serves to introduce the fact, for audiences who may be unaware, of course, that the PSNI carries lethal weapons, the reasons behind which are teased and hinted at as the episodes progress. Some we've been introduced to, the personal protection weapon and in the next scene a vehicle pursuit and crash which was filmed on the rocky road in Belfast. We see the type of long arm the PSNI carry. For a British audience such visuals serve to demonstrate how PSNI officers must be mindful that their quarry may also be armed in certain circumstances. That, even though this is 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement, that our homegrown terrorists and their toxic ideologies have inevitably mutated into violent organised crime groups, continuing the trade in drug dealing, extortion, general criminality and oppressing their respective communities, just as their terrorist forefathers did. Thankfully, Blue Lights doesn't stray away from these aspects and among others such as the nepotism, which was very common within the Royal Ulster Constabulary, although it would also be a reflection of the policing families I spoke about during my podcast on the hunger strikes. And of course, nepotism was also present within the police service of Northern Ireland, whereby the offspring of a senior officer may, but not always, I hasten the add, be afforded a relatively swift and costed ascent up the career ladder. While some of these offspring were arrogantly aware of their status. Others crashed and burned, having been distracted by other nuances or pitfalls of life. <clears throat> Just on a related aside, and why I still remember, there was a Nepo baby, I believe that's the term uh, that's used now, who shot himself in the foot while driving. No idea about those circumstances, but nepotism saved him and saw his career progress to a relatively easy but still very well paid job in Europe. Of course, this is not to detract from what used to be known as a accelerated promotion, uh, which wasn't always full of uh, these Napo babies, and had actually some people who did um, progress and achieve de- degrees, um, and were successful in um, getting onto the accelerated promotion scheme. Anyway, blue lights, pens how it can sometimes impinge working relationships within the job, especially as shown. Promotion candidate exhibits an aloof and superior attitude towards their colleagues. Again, on an interesting aside, for a number of years now, some of the top tier would acknowledge that they are basically business people looking after the management of a business model, otherwise known as policing, which has its customers, clients and products In fact, there has been a sea change in nomenclature which often mirrors these found 
throughout the British Isles. Of course, other forms of networking and maybe a bit of queue jumping in the Royal Ulster Constabulary were uh, the Freemasons and the Christian Police Association. And to be fair, not everybody who joined with a degree or even joined one of these secret organisations um, chose to pursue promotion. Of course, while Blue Lights seems more character driven in narrative terms, there of course has to be plot devices through which certain characters may move towards redemption or damnation. External threats to the characters are found in the storylines which arch through the episodes. Some are touched upon in episode 1, such as the presence of MI5 and its relationship to policing in Northern Ireland, as well as those not so secret as they'd like to think affairs between senior officers and their juniors in rank. Episode 2 of Blue Lights kicks off with a dull hollow ring of spent cases in the firing range. This looks like it could have been filmed in Garneville, although the characterisations of the firearms instructors seems a little one-dimensional. They just seem to growl, spark and bark, and just seem to pad the scenes and juxtapose the desperate keenness of the young recruits in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds stacked against them by the process and their grumpy instructors. However, the seeming coldness of the firearms instructors may also be seen as a character device by which the character of Jerry Cliff contrasts so as to develop his caring and almost fatherly side and evoke greater viewer affection for Jerry as well as showing the relatively obscure to the public pastoral element embodied by so many senior constables. Another key aspect of policing in this post-conflict society is that of being risk or threat aware. Constantly, joining the police service of Northern Ireland involves a number of personal adjustments to your lifestyle, and among these is that of personal security. It's refreshing, in a sense, the blue lights, the writers, chose to depict possibly the most crucial and common aspect of a PNSI officer's life that of checking under your car. It was also very sobering when you are collected together in a darkened briefing room and shown images of the variety of UCBT, that's undercar booby trap devices, both tried and tested designs, as well as new types too. Little contraptions designed to murder you or severely mutilate if for some reason the blast is dampened in some way. The murder or injury to any family members in your vehicle at the time is your fault for not checking under your vehicle and their fault for being legitimate targets. Such conflated labels and blame has long been practiced by terrorists as the act of murder does not trouble their conscience or sleep. In the terrorist's eye it is always their victims who are to blame and therefore deserving of being blown apart or suffering traumatic amputations for their family to witness. I appreciated the inclusion of such in blue lights because checking under your car becomes routine. Soon the very act embeds itself into your psyche, into your physiology like muscle memory. No matter how well you check your car you'll inevitably always <coughs> think that you've not checked it well enough, especially as you drive off expecting to be suddenly engulfed in your own shattered body parts. Fire and a deafening roar. Just talking about UCBTs 
reminds me of a colleague who told me they drove off with the driver's door open for about 25 yards in the hope that if they did miss any device under their car or about their car, then any resultant detonation would blow them out of the door and maybe leave them unscathed. I think we must all think similarly after countless years of searching for death and then still expecting it, even if we can't find its presence. Such trains of thought definitely left their mark, although when my colleague told me that, I laughed. Because that's what you do when the expectancy of death becomes similar to wondering if it's going to rain. I laughed, yes, in a that's ridiculous, just die type of way, while a quiet part of my mind wondered if it was something I should maybe start doing also. Mad times, mad thoughts, as we spent our youth and middle years at the blood-soaked altars of a mad god. At home we had our sidearms, our fears, our counter-terrorism rituals, our distinctive shirts from neighbours, our careers from our children. Anyone asks, I'm a fireman, son. We had everything went off duty, maybe even our true selves we hid from ourselves and from each other and our families and our friends. So much so that when we would be confronted by those selves, our hidden self, finally, we put a gun to our heads or a rope around our necks. Hard to know for sure. Constant chemicals and therapy dull my other selves from each other. I don't know how others cope. If nothing else, blue lights may remind us that even though we see ourselves as living in a post-conflict sort of peace, our police still must be armed and ready when responding to road traffic, collisions or calls in areas where police continue to still be seen as legitimate targets for violent armed criminal groups. Well... Be honest, I wasn't expecting my reflections on blue lights to take such a doom-laden downturn so soon, but I guess that's the nature of the CPTSD beast. So, I've really only reflected on aspects that came to mind during, say, the first three Blue Lights episodes. In the next Stray Bullets podcast, I'll be talking about police affairs between senior and junior ranks, anonymity insured, I'd hasten the ad, um, and also be speaking about MI5, more on personal threats to police, as well as the spectre of the Royal Ulster Constabulary within the PSNI and the transition of the RUC into the PSNI and how I think blue lights maybe embodied a part of that. There's no doubt, I have to say, that I'll also be arcing back and forward through the episodes too as I go through my notes. Yes, I took notes, but that's how bad I am. So thanks again for your time. I'm always very mindful and appreciative of it. So I do hope you'll be joining me for the next Stray Bullets episode when I'll be concluding my thoughts on uh, blue lights and also on those other topics uh, that are raised. Thank you.